Dear guests, welcome back to a new episode of uh, Localizing the Globe. In today's episode, we are back with Vava to discuss uh, a very important topic, the topic of war in Ukraine. Questions of European peace have always been central to this podcast, which exists for almost uh, three years already. And yet the topic of war is a difficult one to discuss due to divisiveness and uh, controversial nature. And as you may know, we come with Vava from different backgrounds. Vava comes from Poland and I come from Russia. And therefore, we tend to look at this conflict from different angles and perspectives. This is not to say, however, that we need to disagree with each other, rather that uh, through collective and open discussion, we may come to a way much more richer understanding of this complex human puzzle that is the war in Ukraine. And that is why I consider this conversation extremely interesting and even precious. And throughout this conversation, we touched upon many different topics, including the reasons for this war, Russian and Ukrainian nationalism, the phenomenon of the West, and also contemplated a little bit about the future of this conflict. So if you like our channel, please subscribe, share it with your friends, and as always, enjoy the conversation. Okay, so, um, hi Vava. Hello Dimitri. uh, We are back with a new episode. Um, after a while, after a longer while, after yeah, almost uh, like the April yeah. last episode was in April. Was in April, yes. So you know, almost. Uh, so time has passed. A lot of events have happened, and uh, we are here to discuss them. Exactly. Um, but I guess we've never touched uh, the topic of Ukraine. I mean, maybe directly. We have glossed over the topic, but not yeah. Yet. Not we haven't discussed this. The issue directly, yes. And discuss the issue directly. So I guess today we will go through this topic. Finally. Yes, finally, collectively. And we'll try to bring different perspectives, I guess, because we come from different countries. Two different uh, sides of the barricade, yes. Yeah, (laughs) even though we are in Berlin, united in the... Well, it has been the place where the West and the East have been meeting for a while. Exactly. And the (laughs) place uh, where free minds um, come together and discuss international relations, I guess. Exactly. Um, so maybe let, let me kick it in um, by asking you, uh, so by asking you the question. It's like, oh, um, so why do you think this war happened? It's like, what's the reason for this war? The reason for this war, um, maybe this will sound like a cop-out from this question, but I really think that the reason for this war is the collapse of the Soviet Union. Okay, so it's like a, like a historian, you... Yeah, I honestly think um, this is something that recently uh, historians of Russia have been analyzing, saying that um, the Soviet Union was dealing with many legacies of the Russian Empire as a colonial empire. So many of the regions that Russian Empire conquered as a colonial, as colonial subjects, basically, were then integrated into the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union tried to address the issues by creating national republics, but it was still a system in which those republics were a part of a larger Soviet system. And this system was not designed to break up. It was not designed to break up. It was 
uh, all the republics were dependent on each other. Uh, the ethnic divisions weren't really clear. Who was the Ukrainian? Who was Russian? Who was Kazakh? Who was uh, Tajik? Who was Kyrgyz? It wasn't really that clearly defined. It needed it needn't to be defined, because after all, everybody was a citizen of the Soviet Union. And then suddenly, those post-Soviet republics enter the world of nation states. The well, Europe and uh, other countries in the West have been nation states for a while. They had it figured out. They fought many bloody wars to figure out that maybe uh, we should, you know, we shouldn't stress too much about it. And this never happened before in this region of the world because it was all under one uh, Soviet flag. And then suddenly the system pretty much disappears overnight. And what do we do about it? How do we suddenly go from a Soviet identity to creating? national identities? How do we define who belongs to which nation? And those questions were unanswered in the process of the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Uh, and, well, they're being answered right now on the battlefield. That's the main reason. And there are many other factors that I think we'll move to discussing very shortly that were catalysts for this entire situation to, to blow up, which includes uh, poor policy decisions, poor understanding of international relations, and, uh, yeah, many other contributing factors. And if I were to turn your question around and ask it to you, what would you say? Okay, so I, I see uh, a trained historian uh, in your, in your <laughs> answer. Because, uh, yep, um, you know me. So basically it's uh, because of the history, because of the uh, breakup of the Soviet Union, which is, uh, of course, undeniably true also in a way how fast Soviet Union broke up and no one really thought about consequences, maybe just linger on this uh, on this issue a bit. And it's interesting how, of course, no one thought, or everyone was uh, almost, if you think on the Western side, maybe happy in the sense that, you know, the whole thing collapsed so smoothly, so to speak. Yes, exactly. But it also was like a time bomb, and now it's it's exploding. Even though, of course, there were many more ethnic conflicts between Armenia, Armenia Azerbaijan, uh, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, I, I would, I would think, as a relativist, <laughs> that you can really go uh, into like two directions, and it's, uh, like the one direction would, would be, of course, uh, Russian official position, and something, something like it. It happened because of uh, um, security architecture in Europe, by and large that um, this architecture is very exclusive, and because of, of course, NATO expansion. I, and I think it's it's a very um, uh, it, it's a very clear worldview I would say uh, because Russian position has been um, pretty adamant and pretty uh, consistent over like you know twenty years since basically nineties they were against uh, um, NATO enlargement and uh, in, in in zeros Putin made it clear so that like Ukraine would be. Uh, um, tipping point for some larger conflict if, if like the US, I would say, proceeds with the, with this policy. Um, so, and this is like one position. Second position would be, of course, American position that it's put, Putin's imperialism. In a sense, it's uh, his ambition to create a larger Russia, maybe, um, and to um, yeah, to to create something um, bigger than modern Russia but also something imperial, of course. Um, um, and this is, I would say, the second um, explanation for, for this conflict. And I think, they also, of course, those explanations are not mutually exclusive, 
because uh, it's like chicken and the egg um, problem that you that it's hard to uh, delineate exactly who is right here because you know uh, the, the the facts are that American position was pretty um, um, I was pretty ignorant to Russian position and Russian position grew uh, more and more um, anti-American over time. Also, and you know, it's, it doesn't mean that one excludes the other. So, of course, Russian, Russian, uh, Russia grew its ambitions with the economic growth and stuff like this. But also, American kind of ignorance contributed to to this problem. I would I would think so. So I would connect both Russian and American explanations and say they're not really exclusive, mm-hmm. mutually exclusive, but they actually give us a, a, a better picture, a better resolution, so to speak, how you can maybe understand the conflict. Um, so this would be from from my side, but of course there are many new nuances to to, to to this. Yeah, of course, and I'm sure we'll we'll get down to discussing them. But um, you mentioned the fact that American ignorance uh, made Russians uh, think less and less of America and to hate them more. So what would you say um, if we were to compare the what the average Russian citizen thought of the U.S. Let's say in the late 1990s. And what they think now? Did it change? Yeah, but I I think it's it's easy to it's like it's easy to say how average Russian should feel and should think. It's it's easy to pitch them like you know if you it's easy to pitch to them that the US is good. It's it's also easy to pitch to them that the US is bad. And like they they will go both directions. But in nineties, of course, Russian elites I would say were very pro Western, okay. uh, pro American, and uh, they genuinely hoped that American position would uh, somehow, in like, I would say, involve Russia into, you know, the broader, like, Western picture, and maybe Russia, they would involve Russia on, on, on Kosovo issue, on, on the issue of, uh, on Serbia, of course, uh, on Balkan wars, which uh, is, like, one, maybe, uh, one example. But in general, would would treat Russia more as a potential ally uh, uh, than as a kind of country that lost Cold War. Uh, and I think just American position has always been, um, I mean, it, it was in a sense just ignorant and they never really thought of oh, what's the place of Russia and maybe of Russian people in this system. And, they, and the, more, the more they ignored Russian position, the more they really pushed Russia to this um, kind of hardcore nationalism. And then, of course, with the Putin coming to power, it was easy to, like, it, it was easy to build on this uh, nationalist rhetoric. Because uh, it was easy to p- p- portray basically as uh, as Russian as uh, people who were deprived or, or of any kind of attention, like you know, like, but what's their purpose? Because it's, it's, you need to still understand those people who enjoyed some form of uh, respect. They always yeah. respect, you know, they the first who you know went to space, they won World War Two. They, I mean, I mean, they they felt really good about themselves, and then suddenly those are people who. You know, have to. Um, it's not just about even material well-being, but those people who don't have any kind of like, like you know, what's where are we going as a nation? What's our future? Like, what's uh, uh, what's like, what's why, why should we live in this as, as a community in this world, so to speak? And I think, uh, um, yeah, and um, this is exactly like what what kind of happened. This this ignorance, in a sense, it definitely sparked Russian nationalism. I think that's the 
word nationalism is uh, actually the key here to understanding the situation, but not just Russian nationalism, but uh, Ukrainian nationalism as well. Um, and nowadays when we when people discuss nationalism, this word tends to have like a negative connotation, but for the sake of this discussion, let's disconnect positive or negative uh, associations with this word and just take it as a fact, nationalism. It's a phenomenon. It's a phenomenon of mass politics, of people feeling deeply attached to some uh, community, imagined or not, it's a fact. They feel a part of a larger community. And it's hard to do uh, realpolitik in uh, a world of mass politics and nationalism, because even if you have a rational politician being in Kiev or in, in Moscow, they might think, okay, maybe given my Crimea would be in the best interest of my state. But my voters, my citizens, they will not stand for it. If I agree to give him a Crimea, it's the end for me politically as a politician. And I think both the president of Ukraine and president of Russia face the same issue. If Putin was to stand down on the question of Ukraine, like he would lose so much politically in, in Russia. I think, well, if he suddenly accepted Ukraine demands and withdrew, I think he would be finished politically. But it's yeah. the same. It's the same for any president in, in, in Kiev. If any president would accept giving Donbass and Crimea to Russia, they would be finished politically. And I think it's the it's the masses who dictate the politics. Also, even if the politicians are able to influence the public opinion, it's still it's still the masses that define what the governments do. Yeah, I would I would I would disagree okay. with this in the sense of uh, I, I I definitely think that it's those elites who. Um, uh, who I think it's a, it's a, there is a, of course a, a not a connection there is almost like a loop process that elites uh, you know show people how you know what are the ideas that are interesting for them and then people follow but they people like when people follow those ideas then kind of change them and then they give a feedback to elites and then elites can adjust. No, no, I absolutely agree. Nationalism is a phenomenon that was created by the elites. Okay, yeah. Then, this, then... Is, this is something that I'm not saying that the the, the elites are always, they always want to have peace. Uh, no, nationalism has been used by elites before to, to well, for personal gain. You have many yeah. politicians who uh, use nationalism as a tool to gain power, to maintain it, or to expand it. But at this point, when you have been feeding your population with nationalist narratives yeah. for ages, you can simply turn it the other way overnight. If you already raised yourself a nationalist society, you cannot undo it in half a year of a war. It's impossible. Yeah, yeah, and especially... But I, I think with the Crimea, there is a one nuance that, uh, of course, in 2014, uh, it, it, it was seen by many as this uh, country torn by uh, the different directions, like the eastern part, uh, you know, chose Yanukovych, and they thought like of themselves more as like pro-Russian, or in a sense like leaning to towards Russian worldview, Russian side, and the the, the Western one leaning towards uh, more or less like na Ukrainian nationalism. Mm -hmm. So of course there is like this this nuance, and I think it's it's it gets uh, when once for for me of course uh, it gets way much more complicated once you start analyzing like Ukraine itself because Ukraine is a is a is a complicated country, uh, and of course, country with the, um, where this ethnic ethnical question um, kind of became very acute. I would say, especially in in two thousand fourteen, yes. 
but uh, of course now like Ukraine identity is way much more well defined so to speak mm-hmm. it's like way much more um um understand I mean it's on the on the like human level it's just easy to be Ukrainian like you know it's hard to be Russian it's uh, uh no I mean in the modern world yes <laughs> yes I absolutely understand what you mean in in the sense of in the sense of nationalism because there is like a sense of belonging to the nation and you know where a nation is going but on the Russian side, it's kind of complicated because you don't know where the nation is going and what's uh, like what's the place of this nation in the world, so to speak. <laughs> and see, we're still discussing nations as the actors here. Yeah, that's uh, that's true in in a sense, um, but also it 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 makes me think. Of course, why why did Americans, for example? So it's almost like a rhetorical question. You may, if you have ideas, you can maybe mm-hmm. uh, come on in and try to try to answer uh, try to answer this question, but. Did Americans intentionally uh, put Russia aside? Because if you if you think, well, uh, for them, uh, especially if you think strategically and long term, um, Russia is a good ally. Like you know, it it could solve. It's it's better to have Russia on your side than Russia that opposes you. So, but in a sense, did they intentionally put Russia aside, and then they intentionally? They didn't want to have it a place in the world, or they didn't really think about it. It's just like pure ignorance. I mean, like, why should we care about Russia? Like, you know, I mean, for me, I mean, I don't, I don't have a specific answer to this question. But for, by observing how the West, or say, and Americans behave now, it's more like this uh, idea, like this, um, um, this um, like emotion of being kind of superior. Like, you know, yes. just you just simply lost. And just you know, know your place in the system. You can either accept us as like you know, kind of like rulers. It's like people who rule the world, or you just like do your thing. But you know, we will be against it or something like that. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly think that it might have been mostly ignorance, but probably it was just a net force uh, of the Cold War policies. I mean, they had half a century of viewing the Soviet Union as uh, an existential threat. And uh, it's hard to change this way of thinking overnight. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the Americans viewed Russia as a continuation of the Soviet Union, just weaker. So you can see it clearly in um, the in how quickly, for example, NATO expanded. It was basically the way of thinking, okay, our mortal enemy is weak now. We have to exploit it. So maybe... I think the, the ignorance part here is the lack of trying to understand what this new Russia is, just assuming automatically that it will be a continuation of the Soviet Union, just a weaker version of it. And it was also a net force uh, caused by the inertia of Cold War policies. That, we, that means our foreign policy is directed towards containing Russia slash Soviet Union. And you can still see in the 90s that America was figuring out, okay, we have this massive army that was designed to counter the Soviet Union. What do we do with it now? And they decided, let's engage into on, on war on terror. Um, you could clearly see that the Americans didn't know what to do. Um, I wouldn't necessarily ascribe them like super hostile intentions, thinking, oh, yeah, we will have to like colonize Russia and uh, make them our puppet. But I think it was just a lack of trying to understand what Russia was, assuming that now that they won the Cold War, everybody will just want to be like them, so there's no need to understand others. Others will want to be like us. 
and the uh, yeah the net force of their policies of what they called war. But it's I, I would say it's if you if I can disentangle your answer, it's um, on the one hand it's a little bit real politic thinking in the sense of uh-huh. real politic, even though it's just it's, misguided. <laughs> no, in in like in a sense uh, they just like they just saw the opportunity that they maximize their power and they completely like almost like inertia, like you know after the collapse they just didn't really think because. Um, like the power was there up for grabs. Yeah, it it's natural. Thing. When your when your opponent blunders a piece in chess, <laughs> you just take the piece. You don't think maybe they will want to to surrender now. Yeah, right? but just here, opponent completely <laughs> collapsed a couple of games. So yeah, it's uh, it's like almost like Nipomnishi, maybe uh, exactly. Like, yes, <laughs> completely like a total collapse, uh, and there is uh, no one, no one with whom you already can like have a competitive chess, I guess. True. <laughs> that's that's true. In a so sense. then you feel playing stupid. Feel, yeah. you, you feel safe playing stupid openings because you still know you can win, <laughs> even if you do stupid openings. Or you can lose, and it doesn't change uh, the end result of the match. But like exactly. the, I, I think like, but what's 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 interesting in the sense that Russia really embraced those ideas, like Western ideas. You could you can say like it tried to, and I think of course like yeah, there is a lack of understanding of uh, I mean other societies in America in general. And of course, like for Russia to have like three hundred, like you know, uh, three hundred sixty degrees like turn, and just like now we are like you, like and we want to be you, and like you know, and in nineties Russia clearly aspired to be like the West. So in in a sense, it didn't really uh, differ that much from Poland, from other Eastern countries, and it was like the same thing. It, it didn't just like this is an interesting thing. Look, it, it didn't just collapse. Oh, maybe like you know, it can happen with China. It collapses, but it's, it's still its own thing. It embraced like you know all these Western ideas like immediately, mm-hmm. and even like during Gorbachev time, it embraced them with a very high intensity. And actually, it's one of the reasons maybe the country collapsed because you know it embraced those so many ideas and it completely it couldn't really handle them. Yeah. Uh, maybe yes, but it's what's and it's interesting. This like where did this ignorance come from? Because I mean. Uh, and if you go through like historic literature on, of course, NATO enlargement, uh, NATO enlargement was uh, like one of the like let's say main points. It was designed to foster democracy and uh, institutions in those countries. Or in other words, they did realize even back then, oh, something even Poland could become authoritarian again. But once it in NATO, we kind of like ensure that it is democratic. So in the long run, it will never become. Anti-democratic, mm-hmm. uh, but they didn't treat Russia the same way. You know, it's interesting, like this, uh, very picky approach, so to speak. Like we, we choose everything in the East except for Russia, but we we won't, we don't really talk about Russia the same way. So even though Russia embraced the same type of ideas and the same type of democratic ideas, of course, in in hindsight, it's really easy to say, well, you know, now we were right. Like we we see Russian imperial policy, but no one, no one. It's like not no one, but they don't uh, understand that exactly their policy caused Russian behavior, because once you don't know your place in the world, you try to come up with your own vision. And um, Putin's vision that he came up is uh, is that of, of course, like let's uh, let's try to build something different. You know, let's say, and it's not like actually Russian world, but it's like this multipolar world, because behind Russian actions there is a, a certainly uh, some depth of thought, like some depth of like, okay, this is the end of American hegemony. We could create something bigger than this, something 
more interesting to other countries in the system, to, to, to China, to India, to Latin America, let's say. Yeah, and this uh, question of identity is really interesting in the Russian case, uh, again, going back to the legacies of the uh, Soviet Union, you can see that, uh, well, when the Bolsheviks first took power in Russia, Lenin said that Russia was a prison of nations, and now that the Soviet Union would liberate them. And what it meant, uh, basically, is that this new political system was created, every different, maybe not every, but most nations received their own autonomous, maybe not autonomous, but republics that were part of the Soviet Union, where they could use their national language, uh, cherish their national traditions. Um, but the Russian Socialist Federal Republic didn't have that. That's something people uh, often don't know. Every single member republic of the USSR had their own parliament, but the Russian Republic didn't. So it's, it's very interesting that Russia occupied a very different place in the Soviet system to the rest of the republics. And um, when the other republics became free, they could easily adopt this narrative of we were part of an evil empire that controlled us. Now we are a free nation. Now we can do whatever we want. And Russia suddenly found itself lost. Like, okay, what do we do now? Intelligent, not uh, intelligentsia, so yeah. local cultural, um, and still some local language and stuff like this. Uh, yeah, in a sense, that's uh, that's interesting and that's true. And it also because Russia always tried to be imperial, especially after uh, I guess it came uh, with the Stalin. Because before Stalin, there wasn't really true understanding of how do we build this country, or before Stalin, there was even like a I mean, there were complete area of ideas and there was no even course in Russian history. They didn't teach kids Russian history simply because there was no idea of what type of country we are building. Mm -hmm. And then like, Stalin came with the, basically the continuation of Russian empire, but yes. like in a new cover, so to speak. Which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like, but, but that's, uh, but that's, I guess, the, like, the brilliancy or the idea of empire. It doesn't need you need to be Russian because empire is something that is way much more, yes. way much more like, like even Turkey now, uh, even the like the US, Britain. It's 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 more about. It's not about what nationality you belong. It's something beyond that. It's mm -hmm. something beyond even I would say nations, right? It's something that encompasses many nations. It's almost like an, it's an institution. Um, Yes, yeah, so it's something that bigger than a nation that encompasses many nations. And then there's a problem. Can you actually reconcile having an imperial foreign policy with being a clearly nation-state? Which is yeah. something that I feel like uh, Russia has, still has a longing for being a powerful player on the international arena. That's, that's obvious. Even with this hint of imperialism. But it's a nation-state. It's clearly a country, Russia, like for Russians. Um, and that's why they say we are invading Ukraine. It's not because we are imperial and we want to subjugate inferior peoples and then help them civilize them. No, they say Ukrainians are Russians. That's why we did this. Yeah, but they, but they also, in in a sense, they try to with Chechen people and people from Caucasus, they try to um, incorporate them. We actually try to change the Russian identity into this. Uh, more um, Eurasian identity. It's like, and it's also, of course, partly in, in, uh, up for discussion in a sense. Um, yeah, they, they actually, in a sense, definitely try to build another empire. 
And like, this, uh, this is also something interesting uh, that it's very impossible to translate into English. That in Russian language, you have the two words for Ruski and Rasiski, which basically means Ruski, which is ethnic Russian, and Rasiski, like somebody who belongs to the Russian state or is part of the Russian Empire. Uh, it's really hard to translate into English. Well, basically, both would translate as Russian into English, but they have very different different connotations. One is being ethnically, nationally Russian, the other one being uh, part of some greater idea of a Russian empire. Yeah. Which shows that this question of who is Russian, who is not, is not new because it's reflected in the language that's spoken. Yeah, it's also, it's also in a sense, it's, I mean, it's still in an in empire by all means. It also definitely uh, encompasses many, many nations, but of course, majority of population is, is Russian, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and I would say majority of population is Western in a sense. It's not, doesn't, in a sense, if you think, think of West as a cultural. What does it mean to be Western? Yeah, it's another, it's another uh, <laughs> purification, so to speak. Uh, we can go there. Like we can go to. We can go like, there. Western, I guess. Oh, in connection, of course, to Russian. Um, I would say for me, it's more a cultural thing, mm-hmm. something that uh, you could not necessarily describe with the precision, but it's something once you're in Europe and you're Russian. Uh, it's actually interesting for me. Like when you once you're in Europe, but you, it's like you know people speak different languages, but there is a some meta culture that's similar. It's like even cities are similar. It's not like. You know, Moscow is that different from uh, from Berlin. I mean, in the sense it is, like, like you know, every cult, every city is different. But I mean, there is the metal structure that is the same, mm-hmm. uh, and it's like metal, metal narratives, meta, even perspectives and things people discuss, things people talk. It's it's just the same type of people. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like you know, I don't see this uh, that type of uh, distance that I could see, for example, like maybe speaking with a person from Japan or from China. I don't know. I, this is completely something different for me. I see the barrier. But this is just from my perspective. Um, so something is... Um, I mean, if, if you want to go to his, historically, I would say it's definitely something that took culture from idea of Roman Empire. So again, yes. um, Empire as something like over-encompassing culture, over-encompassing structure. Because of course Russia took it from Eastern Roman Empire and like the West, it's, it's it's more of a Western Roman Empire, but still Roman Empire, so to speak. It's still like idea of civilization, idea of um, yeah, some some form of meta culture, I would say. So what what do you think? Uh, because it's also interesting with Poland. Uh, of course, Poland wouldn't be, especially before the war, wouldn't be considered as a part of the West as maybe Great Britain, France, or Germany. But for now, because of geopolitics, it's at the forefront of exactly now. Protests. Now suddenly, instead of hearing uh, constantly in Western news that Poland is a fascist state which yeah, uh, limits the rights of women, which uh, limits the rights of minorities, suddenly it becomes the forefront of democracy and struggle for an independent uh, Ukraine, Western yeah. Ukraine. So it again just um, yeah, it just shows that the idea of what is Western, what is not. It's not that clearly defined, and um, I don't think it's that easy to answer, but in terms of cultural differences, I would say uh, that Poles are probably culturally way closer than Russians, than to Russians in comparison to Germans or English or French. It's just not the question of language, just culturally, like the sense of humor. 
the the sayings we have they are identical uh and you don't have that with with western europe but somehow if somebody were asked now is poland west a western country definitely everybody in the west would say yes but if the, if we asked is russia a western country you would get a resounding no so what is this defining factor if there was just one factor which it, which contributed to defining are you western or not what is it i don't know i think it's a feeling i mean personally if you ask are you western or not of course it's just a, it's just a culture so it's a feeling so if you if you leave like if you if you come to germany from russia and after a year you feel like you belong here i think you are western and you see this is what this is what in theory of of nationalism is uh that how do we define a nation what constitutes a nation this is something very what very nicely benedict anderson uh, called imagined communities you have a nation when people identify as part of the nation so i guess you can say that when you identify as part of the west you are the west but of course west i would say there is a difference for me between the west as a noun and western as an adjective uh-huh. i would say the west as a noun is definitely something like a geopolitical project yes it's uh, it's this uh, which is like for me it's of course it's funny because uh, western people are people who love diversity who love genders and they really believe that there are 10 50 genders but there is only the west so, like for me there is um, it's a paradox if you think about like why and if you if you if you see almost like from almost like observer type of perspective everyone uses the west especially now with the ukraine crisis so so often right it's like the west lives the west does the west uh, fights the west defends and it's interesting because of course there is no such i mean it's pretty obvious it should be pretty obvious to people who believe in 15 genders that the west is a, is a, is a, is a imagine is imaginary phenomena uh, and it's a meta structure that of course is not is not real you know you know to respect i mean it, it couldn't be real but it's construction right uh, and of course i think it's a geopolitical project it's a geopolitical project that uh, that of course includes and excludes but it it also exists by conflict there is no meaning because something that is like if if you you couldn't you know envision the West as the world because there is no like there is no point to define the West. So if in order to define something, you need to have a border. You need to have a you certain. Have, you need to have the other. You need to have. So, so yeah, the the West is of course something that um, creates the boundary and couldn't exist without boundary. And in the meantime, you understand that in order to exist. It needs uh, it needs uh, the conflict, so it needs uh, antagonism, and it's pretty I would say gloomy and murky because it means that the West will always be against someone. It won't stop uh, finding new enemies because of course after after uh, war and terror, uh, now the big thing that was in discussion in academic literature rising powers, but now it's obviously Russia, China. So it always has this uh, dynamic of antagonism. Yeah, and I think that the idea of the West was uh, like before the Russian Ukraine war. Uh, I think many uh, political commentators would agree that uh, the West was in crisis. That is, uh, you had the U.S. with Donald Trump, who sort of distanced himself from the European Union. Then within the European Union, you had internal friction. You had countries who were not following EU law. You had EU putting sanctions on them. So there was no uh, 
if somebody said that the West isn't unified, that the idea of the West is fading, it was easy to justify. No, it isn't, because the West has a clearly defined opponent. You could say that those who are democratic, those who side with the US are the West, and those who don't, they're not. And I think that's the issue with every defined community, that you need to have the other, because if you're naming yourself as a community, it implies the need to distinguish yourself from the other. Um, so as long as we have labels, that uh, means that there is the other, and probably this the, this other is in some way Yeah, but it's also very paradoxical because we live in the world where the main thing that's supposed to be on the headlines, of course, now it's the war, maybe. It, we can also talk in, in the sense how Russia generates so much attention, and attention in a sense it is a power. Like, you know, we'll yeah. Uh, but like we can come back maybe to it f later if you like. But the idea how, um, yeah, how of course we live in the world where the main thing is a uh, global warming, is uh, climate change. But you understand that like people who think in this perspective of you know we need to have a well-defined community against someone else, they couldn't be to be honest the solution to uh, climate change. I mean, because. Yeah. For this, you need cooperation on the entire globe. On the entire globe. And then, of course, it's interesting how, uh, what's the, what's even the different, so, but, but again, it, it, it comes back to this idea of um, just geopolitics, like in a sense of very old, like age-old thinking, because for me, once I hear the word the West, and it's like, I, like it's everywhere now. It's, it's like so easy. It's like, it's just everywhere and people use it so often. But it means that, like, this person thinks geopolitically, like, you know what I mean? Um, they didn't transcend geopolitics. They, like, they're in business of doing geopolitics. Uh, even though they also blame, for example, Putin, that Putin is the one who does geopolitics. And I think, no, of course, you are the ones who actually also doing geopolitics. But, of course, they, they mark it with some idea of rule-based order, international rules-based order, something that the West always loves to portray itself as, as the world. <laughs> he's always he's always loved. Yeah, I mean that's that's this uh, idea of well Eurocentrism that the uh, European and Anglo-Saxon cultures uh, think of themselves as those that dictate the world that the world needs to follow and emulate, and mostly because I would also go back historically here uh, because uh, the West conquered the world once, yeah. uh, and I think that this. Uh, idea still persists that even though we do not control Africa anymore, even yeah. though we don't control South America anymore, this idea of that they should aspire to be us because we created them, yeah. we created their states, we gave them, I don't know, electricity or whatever, it still persists uh, in Western thinking. And here we can see it applied to a country that you could arguably say is also Western, that is Russia. <laughs> yeah, which... Uh... But it's interesting, of course, now like Russia has this trajectory that uh, it can play out um, pretty interestingly, maybe in the future. It's like this trajectory, but let's build this multipolar world. I mean, we can maybe go into this direction because if you look at, into the West, it's pretty clear they're moving into this. I mean, they're basically trying really hard to preserve what they, like, I guess, more correctly to say American hegemony. So in the sense that like rules-based order so where, like, you know, the real kind of power in the system uh, belongs to Americans and everyone kind of contributes, I mean, also voluntarily contributes because they really want to contribute to this, the growth of this power. Mm -hmm. But it's still American 
kind of like in the image of America world. But of course, Russia moves into this direction that where the world is completely, it's, it's really in, in a sense like multipolar. And I guess it means um, that there is no overarching, overarching, like, there is no bigger framework that every more or less big country can do whatever it kind of like thinks beneficial, so to speak, for, 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 for it. So this is, uh, and of course it's it's uh, it's not that an interesting idea, I would say, because if you, if you just look at, into the literature about multipolarity, it has some very interesting relativistic perspectives. In a sense, like you have to respect others, like you have to respect, you know, China, you have to respect India. Not not in the sense of if they, if they don't want to be you, I mean, if they want to oppose you, I mean, not even oppose you, but they don't want to be you. So you have to respect it. And you have to respect, of course, that people don't want to be transgenders. <laughs> yeah, coming back. That is, that is an interesting point. And I think it goes back to the fact that the Americans had for, well, a brief moment, let's say 15, 20 years, the uh, luxury of being the country that essentially ran the world, the most yeah. powerful country in the world. And they, felt like history has ended and we can do whatever we want now. And it's hard to accept that the world is not unipolar anymore, that you have centers of decision that will not necessarily align with Washington. Um, and, you know, once you are in a position of power, it's hard to, to let it go and go back and accept suddenly that the world yeah. is multipolar uh, again. Before that, you could see that the Americans respected the idea that there is the Soviet Union, that there is a Soviet sphere of influence. Even if they tried to undermine it somehow, they understood that it won't go away and any decision we make has to uh, take into consideration the Soviet perspective. Then they had the moment where they could essentially do whatever they want. Uh, this moment has ended and they're still struggling to figure out how do we go from here because it's hard to relinquish yeah. control once you, once you had it. Yeah, it's interesting. It's also interesting in in a more like soup like I would say meta abstract level that what what like it has to it has to do with power, and in a way America tries to construct the world is the same way Putin wants to construct power in Russia. So let's let's be the only. It's almost a little bit like a Lord of the Rings here. It's like you want to be the 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 master, and it's like you really don't accept anything else, and Americans really tried tried hard to, to be those masters of the world um, before that. So, and now, of course, they understand that they're really losing this kind of, um, this kind of type of power. Um, um, but I think, of, co of course, it, it couldn't really last. So in, in a sense, if you're strategic, you need to think about something like a transition, maybe like Brits uh, thought about it in the 50s, right? Something that you, you're losing your power naturally and... Uh, uh, how do you go from this? Yes, and yeah, of course, and there is there is a lot of anxiety in the West about this in terms of like, <laughs> especially it relates mainly to China because China is a real big opponent or big contender, both in terms of money, in terms of even culturally. Of course, culturally, I don't think it penetrates the West, but in a sense, they um, there is an understanding that you couldn't really influence. China, that it will be China yes. in its own right. <laughs> it's easier to sell an American movie in Britain than in China. Exactly. Um, and it's interesting, of course, uh, how, how it will play out uh, because 
because that was what we discussed a lot of Mike, there could be something, uh, as, as we see, we started, if you remember, <laughs> with the Ukraine. I mean, we can come back to this idea, how, how will it play out in a sense? Um, where is it going, so to speak? Because something, uh, yeah. So do you have any ideas? Uh, uh, my ideas are pretty grim, to be honest. <laughs> and I think I mean, we, uh, we, we don't differ on this issue too much. Um, I honestly think that um, the main problem is that I don't see either side of this conflict backing down. But may, 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 uh, mm -hmm. Maybe kind of like complicate the, uh, not the question, but maybe yeah, a little bit like add to spice to this, <laughs> to this point. But when you say the party of the conflict, do you mean Ukrainians or do you mean Ukrainians plus Americans or maybe Americans plus Ukrainians? Oh, you do. Uh, that's 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 a very good, <laughs> that's a very good question. Uh, I would consider um, the let's say the West and mm -hmm. so the let's say NATO. Let's let's call it NATO for <laughs> for this purpose. I think which is interesting because of course we are straight into geopolitics because the West, yeah, I mean the West, go, I mean the, the West, NATO. <laughs> let's use this as interchangeable terms in this yeah. discussion. Uh, I don't see NATO as a whole backing down. Yeah. Uh, mostly because of geopolitical interests. Yeah. Uh, so. It's in the interest of the U.S. to keep Russia weak. It's in the interest of the entire eastern flank of NATO to keep Russia weak. Maybe uh, Western Europe doesn't care that much, uh, but they're, they still care about their relations with the U.S. and the rest of Europe, so they will probably keep riding uh, on the same cart. So I don't see uh, the West backing down, or maybe if Trump wins again and he decides to cut military supplies, maybe then. But I don't think it's that realistic. Then I definitely don't see the Ukrainians standing down. Uh, it's just impossible. Uh, I don't know what would have to happen. Uh, and again, for Putin, it's unacceptable to lose this war. Um, and what do we do when we have two sides that have interests and goals that cannot be reconciled? Well, yeah. one will have to win. Yeah, and you have the biggest war since, like, one may say since Korean War, but really in Europe since World War II. Yeah, exactly. So. I mean... Uh, I think many people uh, in the West really root for Ukraine to reconquer uh, all of its territories. Um, but they don't ask the question, okay, what next? Or what will it take to take those territories? That's, that's one thing, how yeah. many people will have to die. I think that's really a question that the Ukrainians don't ask that much because they have their eyes set on a goal and they just pursue it. Uh, which is something that nationalism and mass politics does. And I think it's the same for Russia. Russia needs to win this war, just like Ukraine needs to win this war. And um, what do we do when you have two positions that cannot be reconciled? Well, you, you don't have a peaceful resolution. Somebody has to brutally and by force win. And considering a scenario in which the West also doesn't back down, I can't see a scenario where there isn't some NATO-Russia confrontation. Yeah, which is uh, which is pretty scary, given nuclear war, nuclear weapons, and uh, um, that's true. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I also would add that 
it's pretty obvious that the war in Ukraine is a proxy war between NATO and Russia. But how does it differ from earlier proxy wars between, for example, the Soviet Union and the U.S.? The U.S. could totally afford to lose in Vietnam. Like, they legit lost nothing by withdrawing from Vietnam. For Russia, it's not true. It's basically, they would, it would undermine their, well, entire narrative of why this war was started. It would undermine Putin's political position. It would definitely uh, even uh, increase this, like, revengeism in the Russian society and uh, the feeling of humiliation, which never produces anything good. And then you have Ukrainians who cannot lose either. So I don't know. I don't see a positive uh, resolution here. What is your take on this question? Yeah, I would I will largely agree on the fact that uh, I think the bigger conflict should be anticipated, um, simply because uh, the I, 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 I would add that it's one thing that the positions are reconcilable, but... I, I I say the West lives in this sort of like a dream world scenario where like no one if you really go go like just analyze what people have to say about like this uh, catchphrase that Ukraine must win no one gives explanations and it's like the, it's and again it comes to this point a little bit absurd uh, when you live in this world where people uh, have and the common understanding in the West that Ukraine must win but no one will elaborate and like you know even when people like Elon Musk come with the, like he comes with his plan how to solve and then they start uh, like basically <laughs> you know throwing stones and just like you know trashing mm-hmm. him uh, because obviously he tries to speak more or less real politics more or less with the facts because what what can we how can we solve this conflict uh, realistically without slipping into bigger one. Um, and yeah, it's interesting because again, this is like straight up geopolitics. And for me, it's just what West is doing now. It, he like with the West, I, I would call it the West actually, because it's easier to understand. It isn't the business of doing geopolitics. It's it's really it's really like it tries to win, uh, even like creating these narratives and trying to to win this war. Uh, and of course, like as you as you as you rightly uh, noted uh, on the Russian side, it's the same. It's uh, like what Mishaima would describe as uh, as existential war. It's like something yes. that they couldn't lose, and of course, it's very different from a, it's, it's different from a proxy war that on the opposite side you already fight Russians, and of course, in order to achieve official, I would say, Ukrainian objectives, it would it would require NATO involvement. I mean, I wouldn't think you could liberate Crimea, quote unquote, without like. NATO involvement, to be honest. I mean, already many of the successes that the Ukrainians have wouldn't be uh, possible with, without yeah. without NATO intelligence, without NATO basically NATO t- involvement. Basically <laughs> NATO involvement, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, you know, we let's say we reach this uh, this uh, moment in the war where Ukraine recaptures all of its territories. The only uh, scenario in which the uh, famous West achieves what it wants is the collapse of the Russian state. That is, I think that's what, if anybody is hoping for something there, it's for Ukraine to win this war and for this Ukrainian victory to cause a dissolution of the Russian state. Uh, But it's just one of the possible scenarios. It's probably not the most likely one. Maybe Mm. it's possible, but it's not the most likely. It's not the the smartest scenario to bet on, so to speak. Because, I mean, if it doesn't collapse, then, well, suddenly we're having a bigger war. And, uh, like, 
how I see, for example, bigger war, everyone is lo- like everyone is losing. Like they, they all like all all of them who are gonna be involved are gonna be losers. They're not gonna be winners in this war because I mean not because of just nuclear war, but even if it's some conventional confrontation, of course it can spill into nuclear war, but it it could get very brutal and very unpredictable. Right? It's it's, it's something that you really couldn't control. Like any respect <laughs> and sadly i fear we are moving in this direction yes i guess uh well uh i remember myself saying on mike that there's something gonna happen one year ago actually one one year ago like uh, a little bit more um l- summer 2021 because of all those movements this of course you need to understand the dynamic it's it, the dynamic is that the parties as you said like they have irreconcilable positions and they truly believe that you know like they're in their worldviews and it's just the only one way to see the world, then they're moving into this uh, confrontation and no one wants to back down. So you have like never-ending spiral of escalation that of course it seems like it's impossible. Like if you really wake me up in 50 years and <laughs> the first thing I ask, did like NATO, did the NATO like Russia war happen? And they say, no, you know, it's like, I don't know, they met up with some, uh, you know, Elon Musk arranged like the meeting on the Mars, and then they, you know, Putin went <laughs> with the Biden, and then they, you know, talk talk through the problems, and then they had a peace deal. Like, wow, that's that's a, such a great success story. It's I'll almost like a miracle, right? It's almost like a miracle. And if it happens, the bigger war, and then of course, bigger war completely changes all positions, dispositions. It will completely create new, quite literally, new world order, um, and then, and then it will be completely yeah, different type of the world. So I guess that's a grim uh, outlook on the future. I just want to add to to this like very grim outlook that um, right now everybody in uh, the West says no, there will be no Russia uh, NATO war. I just want to remind you that everybody in the British and German and French press before World War One was writing there will be no war. And it was the same before World War II. Everybody in French, British, and Polish press was writing, there will be no war. And that's exactly the same thing we have now. <laughs> I think what changed is, of course, the idea of nuclear weapons and like, how it plays out. And, uh, um, but in, in a sense, but for me, it's also, I think, we lived through only one conflict in the past that where like, the, the usage of nuclear weapons was a very feasible, of course, Cuban Missile Crisis. And, of course, uh, if humanity... If humanity survives over like centuries, there will be many more conflicts uh, like this, like many more conflicts like Cuban Missile Crisis, and I think we move to like new Cuban Missile Crisis. And I mean, uh, I can maybe like the last thing I, I want to say that of course it will be the moment as as you also already uh, mentioned. It's like it's like where Americans, I would say, or the, the West, I would say actually Americans here. Uh, will have to step down, like in the, in the same way Soviet Union did during Cold War, because during Cuban Missile Crisis, because there is no way for Russia to retreat, and for them it's existential, right? So you have to, I mean, uh, in, in other words, there will be a moment when Americans realize, aha, uh-huh, so this is, uh, so they already, I don't know, maybe you know, <laughs> you know, like uh, gave commands, like you know, to mm-hmm. launch nukes, or they already. Uh, started targeting our blah, blah, blah. I don't know. They, but there will be some moment there when it's like that close, the nuclear war. Or maybe there are going to be some hostilities 
and then they realize, uh huh, so this is a big one. <laughs> and then, of course, yeah, it's a history. <laughs> and we're moving into the unknown, which is something that we haven't seen in history before, so we have no point of reference. That's why history has come back. Right? Exactly. Thank you. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> very well summed up. Yeah, so it was great conversation. As always. Thank you very much. And um, uh, we'll see each other in next episodes. Hopefully, um, when with some more positive outlooks on the future. Yes. Uh, thanks for listening. See you soon.